The hardest part is the first step. We get in our own way, right? I could have easy. I, I could have easily told myself at the very beginning, I don't have legs. I can't snowboard again, and and my life would have gone down a completely different direction. But instead, I thought, well, I'm curious. Let's see if I put the effort in. You know, if I could figure something out. And I think that's how I've approached every everything in my life, even writing a book. It's like, oh my God, that's daunting. That's hard. Who am I to write a book? Who's going to buy it? Who's going to read it? Well, let's just take the first steps and and just start writing what I want to share. And, you know, all of a sudden a chapter turns into two, into five, into 10, and then it's a book. And then it's, you know, it takes on a life of its own. So you just got to take the first step. You don't got to think about the whole staircase. Just take that first that that first step. Welcome to this week's episode of the Not Almost There podcast. I'm your host, Joe Chura, and you just heard from this week's guest, Amy Purdy. Amy is nothing short of exceptional. I cannot wait for you to dive into this episode. I met Amy at my event, Refuel, where she spoke, and you can see her full presentation and the other speakers at Refuel by just going to the YouTube search bar and put in Refuel 2021, or of course, it's going to be linked in the show notes below. But that said, I was so lucky to get her on my podcast to get a more in-depth conversation about her life story. And again, I can't wait for you to hear this today. For some context, if you're not familiar with Amy, she's a three-time Paralympic medalist, currently the most medaled Paralympic snowboarder in the U.S. She's an author, model, actress. She was on a soul-inspiring global motivational speaker tour with Oprah. She's an entrepreneur. She was in Dancing with the Stars where she won the runner-up and so much more. I know that is a mouthful. And did I mention Amy has accomplished all of these amazing feats after having both legs amputated below the knee, and this was at the age of 19. I told you she's exceptional. Today, what you're going to hear is a genuine and open conversation, and I felt fortunate enough to be able to hear a story that Amy doesn't share often. And I always love when I have a podcast guest that says that because that just means you are getting the value from some of her wisdom and her insights, including the clip you just heard. So that all stated, I'm going to stop talking. I want you to put on your shoes, head outside, wherever you're at. Chances are it's getting a little nicer out and listen to this week's episode with Amy Purdy. Amy, it is so great to be with you today. Thank you. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy to be here. So I, you uh, you recently spoke at a conference I had called Refuel, blew everyone away. In fact, my my trainer this morning, we were working out and I told him I was talking to you today and he was just very jealous. And he was like, Amy was my favorite presenter at Refuel. Um, so I just wanted to give you kudos. You, you touched a lot of lives during that event. Oh, thank you. That's awesome. I mean, that's an incredible event. I think it's amazing what you're doing. You know, what you're like the value you're giving to your staff and just to the audience and everybody who is there. It's amazing. Well, thank you. It was a, it was our fifth year and it was very special and to have you there again was in, was just uh just amazing in itself and and that just kind of brings me to kicking out this podcast cuz your story is so incredible to me. And I asked you off air, I'm like, Amy, do you ever get tired of sharing your story? Because it's, it's so amazing, yet it brings you back to maybe, um, you know, a darker place. But I think, I think that's, that's the power of it. Um, and I wanted just to, just to ensure that you were in a good place to um, want to tell it again. Because what boggles my mind with the whole thing is that it happened at an age when you were like 19 years old and and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but up until that point, you were just in, you know, living life as a teenager, you were an athlete, and then all of a sudden, your life just changed. And you went from being very healthy to all of a sudden, uh, possibly dying. Like, and what, what I can't wrap my mind around is, is, one, we take health for granted all the time. And um, how one day you're completely fine. And then you get a 
bacterial infection, and the next thing you know, you're on life support. Right. <laughs> it's just it's 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 hard to fathom for me. So like, maybe take us back to that place where that happened, and and uh, it, even even a little a little bit before that, if I got that correct, like you were an athlete, or you were uh, just a, just a teenager, right? Yeah. So so first of all. I do not get tired at all of sharing my story. Um, you would think, yeah, I do it for a living. <laughs> but, you know, there's all these different aspects to our stories and our lives. And I think that's, you know, I've learned the power of sharing our stories. That's how we connect. And and so I appreciate the opportunity to do so. Um, and just to go back to, so when I was younger, I actually wasn't an athlete. Believe it or not, I did not become an athlete till I was 30 years old. That is when I could actually say I'm an athlete. I'm training to be the best athlete I can be. When I was younger, though, I did snowboard, but I didn't look at it like a sport. I looked at it like a lifestyle. My friends snowboarded. They were skateboarders. Like, there was this whole lifestyle to snowboarding and skateboarding where it never even dawned on me that it was a sport. It was just something we did. And um, my friends were like artists and musicians and they skateboarded and they asked me to go snowboard one day. And I went with them. I had skied before because my family is really into skiing, but I was never good at it. I never felt like an athlete. I never, I definitely never felt athletic. And but I, I fell in love with snow, with snowboarding right away. Um, I picked it up really quick, probably because I like had a crush on the guys who were teaching me. And I was like, I got to learn this because they're all doing it and they're teaching me. So like, let's get this. And I ended up picking up snowboarding really quick, falling in love with it. I figured this is something I'll do for the rest of my life one way or another. And so at the age of 19, the day after I graduated high school, I moved to Salt Lake City. My plan was uh, to go to massage school there, to snowboard, and to be able to take this career with me anywhere I would go. I wanted to travel the world, snowboard, and I could basically just have my massage table by my side and, and I'd be able to go anywhere. And so I did that. I ended up moving back to Las Vegas, um, became a massage therapist there. And just a few months after I started working and I just loved my job uh, is when my life changed forever. I remember going to work feeling great, um, but about halfway through my day, I started to get really tired and I kept thinking, you know, maybe I just have the flu or something like my back was a little bit achy. My neck was achy. I took a break from work and over my lunch break, I was like, you know what? I I actually think maybe I'm getting a little bit sick. And so I went home from work early that night. I had a temperature of 101. That's kind of typical flu-like symptoms. But within 24 hours of that first flu-like symptom, I was in the hospital fighting for my life. I was given less than a 2% chance of living when I entered the hospital. I was put on life support. I was actually given less than two hours to live. That's what they told my family when they called them because all they knew was that I was in massive septic shock and I had some kind of infection in my body, but they had no idea what it was yet. Um, so they put me on life support right away. My All my organs started failing. I mean, just within, literally when I entered the hospital, I was already in full septic shock. So they were fighting right away to save my life. And um, and kind of leading into that, you know, the, the first kind of half of my day, I just felt like I had the flu. And then all of a sudden, it took a turn for the worse. And so I ended up in the hospital fighting for my life. It took five days to figure out that I didn't have just the flu, I had something called meningococcal meningitis. And we have no idea how I got it. It's a bacteria, like a little microscopic bacteria that's that's actually fairly common, but very rare to get sick with. But when you do get sick with it, like when it does enter your bloodstream, they say it doubles every 20 minutes. So within the first 15 hours, it, it's like 85% deadly because you think you have the flu and then all of a sudden hour 15 you realize you're fighting for your life. And so my life changed forever incredibly quickly pretty much in the in, in the blink of you know our eyes like I entered the hospital put on life support fought for my life and um, I was in a coma for about two weeks and when I woke up from that coma, 
I knew that my legs were in trouble, my legs below the knees, because in fact, right before I went into the induced coma, um, I remember I was like gasping for air, but my feet were so cold. And this was day two of the hospital. And I asked my dad if I could see my feet. And he was like, we're not worried about your feet right now. We're just worried about your life. And I just said, I need to see my feet because they hurt so bad. My dad pulled the sheets back and my feet were just purple. So that was my last memory before going into this coma. And then when I woke up from it uh, about two weeks later, um, we were fighting to save my feet and my legs below the knees. And all of that happened because I was in septic shock. So your body pulls blood from your extremities to save your organs. And so therefore you start to lose circulation to your extremities. And, um, and that's what, what was happening for me. So at the age of 19, you know, I, I never could have imagined what was going to come my way. And I certainly would have not ever thought that I would have the strength to get through it, but it's led me to amazing places. Yeah, it's, it is, um, unbelievable to hear that. What are the odds of that happening? Like how many people get that a year? So it's a little bit more rare now because there's vaccines against it. Um, but they say as far as getting sick from it, so th so they used to say 20, like 25% of the population carry it. So, but we have all types of bacteria that we're right. around every day, right? Like there's viruses and bacteria and colds and flus and all types of wacky things that our immune systems are just constantly fighting off. So this is one of those things where... That's, you know, one-fourth of the population carry this bacteria on their nose and their mouth. At least that that's what the statistics were when I got it. But yet the majority of people were fighting it off and weren't getting it. For some reason, I my immune system just didn't fight it off. It was maybe like the perfect storm. I remember the weekend before, I so I was working a lot of hours. I was going out with friends. I, you know, we partied for a friend's birthday. We were out at the lake wakeboarding. There was, I remember that weekend, there was just so much going on. I was around a ton of people. And so, you know, I could have at any time got in contact with it. My immune system might have been a little bit run down. And it just, you know, kind of, you could either say wrong place at the wrong time or right place at the right time. Yeah. <laughs> so the, I heard you talk about this um, on another podcast, but there is a there is actually somewhat of a premonition that something was going to happen, uh, but you had no idea what what it was. And when I heard that story, it blew me away. And and especially at nineteen, like it's easy to dismiss things, and I think you took it in a different way. So can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean. I think I've always been a spiritual person, um, just aware that there's something bigger than us. And um, I was never religious, but I definitely felt connected to spirit or, you know, our higher power. And so when I became a massage therapist, that really amplified that for me, because when you massage, you're in such a relaxing environment it's like I was my most intuitive at that time in my life because it's just you and your client. And it's like, you've got, you know, music and that puts you in this state of mind. You're not thinking about anything else. It allows you to really get connected with yourself and with the person that you're working with. And so I, um, there was a day and this was a couple weeks before I entered the hospital. So there was a day where I had worked a full day and I was living in Vegas. I was working at the Venetian Hotel, which is, a, there's a spa there that's a world-class spa called Canyon Ranch. And this spa was huge. I've been to it. Yeah, it's great. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's amazing. And I was, I was actually the youngest massage therapist hired. All of the massage therapists that were hired were like, they had been massage therapists for 20 plus years. And I was fresh out of school. And I was so grateful to have such an incredible job like that. They, they there was just so many amazing benefits. And it's just, it was, it was an incredible wellness environment. 
but it was huge. It was 64,000 square feet. So like to walk through the spa, to walk through the hotel, to walk through the parking garage, I mean, just to get to work was like a workout. And I worked a full day and then went, you know, back through the hotel, all the way through the garage, got in my car. Right when I was getting in my car, my manager, Shane, called and he said, Amy, is there any way you can come back? Because somehow there's, you know, somebody sitting here in the in the lounge that we forgot about and uh, we don't have a therapist for him. And I was like, oh my gosh, sure. So I go back and I end up, you know, I set my room up. In fact, I didn't even have a room for him because all the other rooms were booked. So we ended up setting up a massage table in like this wet room that wasn't even set up yet for massage. But I ended up bringing him back into the room. And he was this really kind, like the, the minute I saw him, the minute I walked into the lounge, I saw him and he, and he was just a sweet old man with like these baby blue eyes. And um, I couldn't tell if he was like Indian or, you know, but he had darker skin. And I, But I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so happy I came back for this guy. And so I started to massage him. And the minute I put my hands on his back, we just had this connection it's almost like sometimes people kind of, their muscles will like be so tight, they repel you and it like takes forever to warm them up. But like somehow he was just so receptive and it allowed me to instantly get into this really calm and relaxed space. And we just started talking and he brought up, he asked me this question. And so just to kind of lead up to this really fast, I'd always felt like, something was going to happen in my life that was going to set me apart. And I don't even know what that means. That's the only way that I know how to say it because that's what I wrote in my journal. Like, I don't know if what's going to happen is good. I don't know if it's bad. I don't, I don't even know what that means. It's just, it was just kind of this um, feeling that something was going to happen in my life that was just going to take me on a different path. And that feeling was getting stronger and stronger, but I was like, what is it? I don't even know. You know, I'm a massage therapist. And then as soon as I started massaging this guy, he goes, he goes, I have a question. Um, have you crossed over? And I was like, wait, I said, um, and I kind of felt like maybe he's talking about what I am feeling. Like, I'm like, no. I said, but I feel like something's going to happen in my life that's going to set me apart. I don't, I don't really know what that means. And he said, um, he said, well, let me tell you, I crossed over. He, he told me the story of when he was younger, he fell down a well and he drowned. And um, he, he had this near-death experience and they ended up saving him. I'm, I can't remember who found him, but... Um, they ended up giving him CPR, and obviously he survived. But he said from that point forward, his life was completely different. He saw things in a completely different way. He lived a, a deeper, more meaningful existence. And, um, and he said, that is going to happen to you. And when it does, don't be scared. And gosh, it makes me <laughs> – it actually makes me emotional because I actually – I really, I wrote this in my book, but I actually have, I don't think I've ever really shared it in a podcast before. Um, and I haven't talked about it in a long time, but I was crying at that time as well. I was like massaging his back with like tears going down my eyes, just thinking somehow this guy is speaking a truth to me that I, I know. And um, it was just the most amazing conversation and experience. And it was about three weeks later that I entered the hospital, uh, full septic shock, you know, given less than 2% chance of living. And I remember laying in the emergency room with the doctors and nurses running around, freaking out. The nurse called my parents and said, we have no idea what your daughter has, but she has maybe two hours left to live. There was a nurse named Penny trying to find a vein in my arms. She was crying and yelling at the doctor saying, why can't I find a vein? And the doctor was saying, because she's in cardiac arrest. And so all of this just chaos was going on around me. And right then, I remember thinking of that guy and thinking, he told me, don't be scared when this happens because I'm supposed to go on and live an amazing life. And so I, I hung on to that. And I ended up going into a coma, fighting for my life for another two weeks, flatlined, 
um, all types. I had a near-death experience. All types of things happened. And, um, you know, it, it led me down the most amazing path that I never could have imagined. Wow. And he was right. You know, whoever he was, he was right. So. Thank you for, for sharing that. I, I got goosebumps just you you talking about it, I, and I can't imagine that scenario. Well, I'm, I'm I am imagining it, but it's hard to again fathom that situation. I'm I, because at 19, like, do you have like how many people would have dismissed that comment or said you're in or Vegas, right? There's all this, yeah, you you know, like and and the way that that went down. How did the massage conclude then since it was such a deep experience yeah i mean i i was crying he knew i was crying like there was just this amazing conversation that continued the entire time and um really at the end i mean i gave him a hug and he walked away and um and i went home i thought about it the entire drive home i went home i wrote it down in my journal and somehow it just, he spoke to me. It's like he spoke a truth that I believed deep inside, but did not understand what it was yet. And even at that time, I didn't understand what that was. I mean, I just thought I just had the most amazing conversation. And somehow he spoke to this, this feeling that I've had. And, you know, I, 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 I told my family about it, but, you know, I, I then kind of just continued on for the next couple of weeks with my normal job. And it really wasn't until I was laying on my deathbed that he popped up in my mind, like, ah, this is what he was talking about. And he said, I'm going to live an amazing life. And so that's, that was kind of when the doctors were saying, she has two hours left to live. You know, I thought, no, I'm going to I'm going to live an amazing life. I had something to hang on to. And, and, Uh and, and I don't know if, if, you know, I don't know who he was. I don't know if that was like a, a messenger, like an angel kind of put in my path. Did he even know how much of an impact he made on my life at that time? I, I, I don't know. But, and, and was it just the fact that I believed what he said, just that alone? I believed what he said, that I was going to live an amazing life and to not be scared maybe that was enough to kind of shift my mindset of like, nope, I'm fighting this. Nope, I'm confident that I'm going to live an amazing life. Like, who knows? But it certainly, um, it was the beginning of an incredible journey. Have you ever went back to try and find out who he was? I've been asked that a lot. And it's so interesting that I never have, I, I may be able to, I'm still in touch with, you know, the whole management team and everybody there. And um, I'm not sure. I mean, there is a chance. There is a chance we could round it down, to be honest, if they if they still have the records of, you know, who we were seeing at that time. Uh, he was a much older man. So I, at this point, you know, we're talking 20 years later. I'm not sure if he would still be around. But, um, you know, I've never tried to track him down. And I don't know if I haven't tried to track him down because... I also like the magic of it. I right. like like yeah. what was that? Who was that? I don't know yeah. if I want to. Yeah, you don't want to hear anything. I try to find more answers because it certainly had, just that in itself had a meaningful, you know. But that was meaningful for me. Yeah, yeah. No, I I totally see that because that could go a different direction, good or bad. You know, right? If you again, and then it's then that just causes my creates more questions. Right. <laughs> have have you so you mentioned like you were always spiritual. Have you like at that point and once you got out of life of life support, was that just a reaffirmation that one be more open to things around you and try and listen to your body, try and listen to what the universe is is giving you? Like how did you I guess uh, create a reaffirmation from that experience to know you actually did get through it. And maybe it was because of his words that you were holding on. Yeah. I mean, so all I know when I woke up from this coma that I was in, I was still fighting for my life. I had about a 15% chance of living at that point. And I was awake and aware 
at that point, but I was on life support. So I had tubes down my throat and like on breathing machines and 24 hour dialysis. I had machines fully supporting my body, but I was awake and aware at this point. And um, I just remember feeling, I remember feeling so grateful to be alive, like kind of as I started to understand more of what was happening and more of what happened over the two weeks that I was in a coma. When I first woke up, it's like you're in and out of it a bit. Um, It's not like you're just awake and clear all of a sudden. It's kind of like, you know, it probably took a good week to kind of come to. And I remember at first thinking, you know, I must have the flu. And I think when they pulled the tube out of my throat, I, 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 my dad said, do you know, do you know what's happened to you? And, and I said, well, I think I have the flu. And I was like, by the way, can you call my work? Tell him I won't be until Monday. (laughs) That was the first thing I said. And my dad's like, oh my God, no, this is not, you don't have the flu and you've been here for two weeks and you've been fighting for your life and we've almost lost you multiple times. And you have like a, you know, a, a massive amount of prayer circles going on throughout the world, all the way to the Philippines, because I had a Filipino doctor who had her whole prayer circle at home. And so it was this whole thing that I started to gather how big of a deal all this was. And and then kind of, you know, I started to wrap my head around everything that was going on. And I was still uh, looking at losing my legs. I was in full kidney failure. My spleen had burst and almost killed me. Um, that was removed in an emergency surgery. I My lungs were full of fluid. We had to do surgeries on my lungs. Um, I mean, I had something like 14 IVs sticking out of every, you know, artery and vein that you can think of. Um, and yet... I felt incredibly grateful. I just felt like I am so grateful to be alive. I was that close, that close to dying. Like I am so blessed to be here. And and that kind of gratitude helped me with losing my legs, losing my kidneys, because I felt like well, I'm here for a reason, so I might as well use it. I, I mean, if I wanted the easy way out, I probably... I certainly could have taken it because I was already halfway there. So like, I'm here. I fought to be here. My body fought so hard to have me here that I need to use every moment I can um, to live the best life I can. Incredible. So so then when you found out they were going to have to amputate your legs, was that something that you was that was hard to deal with and cope with or what was that like yeah i mean so i knew when i woke up from that coma my feet were in trouble the bottoms of my feet were black i mean absolutely black and then my feet were purple swollen all the way to my ankles and there was like this distinct line of demarcation of like okay like calves up are healthy, but like ankles down are not healthy. And we did everything to save my legs. I was too unstable to do hyperbaric. That was at another hospital. So they, there was a day that they were trying to like prepare me to move me to this other hospital. Um, but I ended up like my blood pressure crashed and my heart rate went up. I was just too unstable to move me. So they were never able to get me to the hyperbaric oxygen chamber, which could potentially have saved my feet. Um, And so I was very aware that I could lose my feet. um, And, but it's so hard to wrap your head around that. Like in my mind, I'm thinking that's not going to happen because I can't even visualize what that would be like. So, um, and I, I remember even thinking I've never seen anybody like with, like, actually, I, I pictured the only amputee I've ever seen was um, a wounded veteran, you know, sad to say, like a wounded veteran sitting on a corner, you know, without legs, asking for money or food or something. And I'm like, that was the vision I had in my head of like, oh, like now I'm going to be somebody without my legs. So I, the whole thing was just really hard to wrap my head around. But I remember... Um, the day that the doctor walked in and he stood at the end of my bed and he said, Amy, if we don't amputate your legs here, and he kind of pointed mid-calf, 
Uh, if we don't amputate them here tomorrow, next week we're going to have to amputate them up here. And he pointed to my thighs because they could tell with my blood work that things were starting to turn like gangrene, which is where your tissue is starting to die. And then it just poisons your blood. And I actually got very lucky to have something called dry gangrene, which is like it didn't, that line of demarcation never spread. It just was like, mm. this is what's healthy. This is what's not. A lot of people who have had meningitis, in fact, I pulled out of this so lucky because a lot of people who have survived meningitis have lost their arms and their legs and their kidneys and their spleen and their ears and their nose and like all extremities or had um, major skin graphing because when you go in such severe septic shock, your blood gets pulled from all your extremities to save your organs. And so I got so lucky, really. So my hands were just as bad as my feet. I know I talk about my feet a lot, but my hands were actually just as bad as my feet. So at first we thought I was losing my hands and my feet. And all of a sudden that kind of switched around. There was a day where my hands just started to heal and we could tell there was like pink skin underneath some of this like dead skin that was on my fingertips. And so we then changed, um, you know, our focus from my hands just to my feet. And, um, and so, yeah, I remember the doctor coming in saying, you know, we, we have to amputate your legs tomorrow. And I just said, all right, I'm ready. Do what you, do what you got to do. Get me out of here. I really was like, I am so tired of people feeling sorry for me. I am so tired of being touched. I am so tired of having tape ripped off of me all day long. I'm tired of these needles. Like, get me out of here. And so I really, I know that sounds crazy, but I, I never cried about it. Not that it was easy. I'll tell you the hardest part was like then living life without legs. So, you yeah. know, there were certainly those experiences. But like at this point, it was just let's do what we got to do to get me out of here. So the next day I went in um, for surgery. And as I was being wheeled in, I gave myself three goals. One was I had never missed a season of snowboarding and I wasn't about to. So this happened in August. So I was like, okay, so this next season I'm snowboarding again. And then the second one was, you know, if I figure this out, I will help other people do the same. And then the third was, I'm not a victim and I'm not going to act like one. Like I'm not going to feel sorry for myself because I'm here for a reason and, um, you know, I'm going to make the best of, of what I've got. And so those were the three goals that I gave myself. And, and I needed to give myself something as I was being wheeled in there because it was terrifying. You know, I didn't know what to expect, even though I was like, let's do it. Let's get through this. I had no idea what to expect. And so I needed those goals to pull me, kind of to pull me into the future. What am I working towards? And, um, and really that, you know, that began, that began kind of the next part of my life. Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's just crazy to think through all of that that you went through. What was the timeline like then when you first went into, I guess, a coma to um, getting surgery and getting out of the hospital? So I guess another way of saying that is how long were you in the hospital? Yeah. So I, I let me think. So I think I was in the hospital for about two and a half months. Um, I, I lost my legs about six weeks after entering, entering the hospital. And when I went home, um, I was still in full kidney failure and needed to do dialysis. I was on hemodialysis a couple times a week. So, um, my mom would wake me up three times, three or four times a week at six in the morning and we'd drive down to this dialysis center and I'd have to hook up to this machine and spend four hours there a day. And um, my life was drastically different. But I continued to feel grateful. I mean, I felt grateful to be alive. I felt grateful to have a second chance at life. I felt, I felt grateful to have my family, to have my friends. I had a ton of support that helped me huge. I remember I still felt like me. You know, so I didn't feel, I felt different. I had scars from head to toe, 
I mean, I didn't have my legs, but I remember one night looking in the mirror and just thinking, I still feel like me. Like, I still Mm want to do the same things I want to do. I still want to snowboard. I still want to live an amazing life. I still want to travel. And so that just became like my vision for my future and what I started to work towards. And then when did you pick up a snowboard and how was that first experience like even trying to get on one? So I did snowboard that season. I told myself I would. Um, Incredible. <laughs> but let's see. I, I think I got my prosthetic legs. Now it is a journey to get your legs to fit right. I'm actually in that journey again right now for the first time in 20 years. Um, and it is a serious process. It can take weeks to months to years to get your prosthetics to fit right. Uh, because first of all, they're custom made. You are. It, they're very... Uh, they're very not natural. Like you've got bones in your legs and, you know, somehow you're like in carbon fiber and metal. I mean, there's nothing comfortable really about walking in prosthetic legs. Therefore, they have to be perfect. If the bone is rubbing a little bit, I mean, that could be enough to just completely keep you off your legs. You have to fix that. But once you fix that, it usually impacts another part of the leg and something else doesn't work. Like Like if it's pushing in on your calf and they open the calf, then all of a sudden you're hitting the bottom and you're hitting Mm -hmm. the bone on the bottom. And then, you know, so it's just this, it's this journey where I think my first pair of prosthetics really to get them to a place where they were comfortable took about a year and a half and probably 12 sets of legs before I actually got to a spot where I was like, okay, I'm good. I can go back to work as a massage therapist. I can snowboard. I can work out. But so I was I was in that process when I decided I wanted to snowboard again because well I didn't decide I wanted to snowboard again. I decided to follow through with my goal of snowboarding that year. And so I think it was um, September that I started getting my legs worked on and March that I decided I'm gonna go up, I'm gonna see what this feels like. And it was completely different than I could have even imagined. I couldn't feel my feet on the ground, I couldn't even walk in the boots on the snow, I was falling all over the place just to walk to the lift. When I was sitting on the lift, I was terrified. I was suddenly, like the reality of maybe I can't do this again hit me. Like up until this point, I kept thinking, I got this. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to get creative. I'm going to find a way. But then all of a sudden I was, you know, at that moment of, is this possible? And I got really concerned that I'm going to find out right now that maybe I can't ever snowboard again. And, um, and something my friends did, it's like, it's like that I was so, I was not going to take no for an answer. Snowboarding was my passion. And so I got off the chairlift and I remember I didn't fall. Um, I, but then I sat down, I strapped in and then I got up and I kind of rode my heel side and that felt okay. But then I went to ride my toe side, like I carved onto my toes and my ankles wouldn't bend. And so I just shot straight down the mountain and I hit this bump and I fell and my goggles went one way and my beanie went the other way and my legs completely detached and went flying down the mountain. <laughs> and, um, and I was sitting up on top of the mountain. So like, I didn't even think about that happening. And so my sister and my friend hiked down, picked my legs up, brought them up to me and, um, and I was really discouraged and I thought, okay, this is obviously impossible. Like otherwise you would see double leg amputees snowboarding every day and we don't. But then I thought, okay, before I get too overwhelmed here, what needs to happen? And I thought, okay, I got to figure out how to keep these detachable body parts attached to my body. And I also need to find ankles that can move in the way that I need them to. I'm like, there's got to be something out there. So I ended up going on this mission to try to find the legs that would work for me. And I called every, first of all, I called every adaptive ski school across the country to see if they worked with a double leg amputee snowboarder. And they all said the same thing. They said, you should take your legs off and sit in a monoski, which, you know, a lot of people who have paralysis or can't use their legs monoski, but I, A, wasn't a skier. I was a snowboarder and B, I wanted to try to use my legs. I wanted to figure out a way to use them. And I thought maybe there just hasn't been somebody passionate enough about this to actually put in the work to try to figure it out. And then I also called every prosthetic manufacturer in the world 
and asked if they ever made legs for snowboarding, and they all said no. And so I made a pair of feet myself. I ended up working with my um, prosthetic shop and you know, making sure my prosthetist knew exactly the motion that I needed. We started ordering different types of feet. We ended up taking an ankle from one brand and turning it backwards, and then a leg from another brand and putting it together, and we duct taped it and added a bunch of wood to the heel that would get me over my toe. And so... I knew the motion that I needed, um, and so we were able to create these feet. And when I went back up to the mountain, I was able to snowboard in them. And you know, little did I know at that time how much that would, like, that my, you know, that that was the beginning of like my Olympic career. I mean, I never could have imagined that, but um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I realized that you can either be completely you know, stopped in your tracks by a massive obstacle or challenge, or you can get creative and find a way. And that's what I decided to do. During that process, what, what was the, um, I, I know you've talked about in the past, just the power of being present. Did that really help you get through it to look at each step that you were in versus like being overwhelmed with the huge challenge in front of you? Yeah. I mean, there's no way. I don't think I would have made it if I really at that point thought of this big outcome. Like if I mm. had thought of someday I'm going, I, like someday I want to compete in the Olympics. I don't even know if I ever would have gotten started, right? That's like so huge and so far away. And like, oh my gosh, I don't have legs and what the heck. So like you have to just take one step at a time you really have to just take a step forward and see where that takes you and then take another step forward and see where that takes you. For me, it's like once I started to take action in the things that I, that I was passionate about and that for me was snowboarding. So once I just slowly started to figure things out, like, you know, I had these feet, but I had to adjust them. I had to constantly adjust them to do what I wanted to do. Like once I was able to do that, then I thought, okay, I'm going to enter my first snowboard competition. I actually met a few other amputees who were snowboarding. We met each other online and, and one of them said, hey, there's this um, national snowboard competition that said they would accept us if we want to come out and compete and um, like in, a, in an adaptive division. And so I was like, oh my gosh, so that became my goal. It's like, okay, got to get my legs comfortable enough so I can show up and do that. I was still on dialysis. I hadn't even had a kidney transplant yet at that point. And I remember my mom was like, let's do it. We drove out to Mammoth and I met up with like maybe five or six other amputees who were snowboarding and they rode really well. And I learned a lot from them and and then we did this competition and I ended up winning bronze medals all week. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so, this is so cool. That just pushed me even further than what I thought I could do. And kind of from there, I just started fine tuning my equipment and started riding better and better. I ended up meeting my husband um, while I was snowboarding in Crested Butte, Colorado. And he is a big snowboarder. His um, mom is uh, has always worked in the nonprofit field um, for like Indian affairs, but she she really encouraged us. Like as our relationship grew, so did this idea of, okay, I can snowboard with prosthetics. Why don't we help more people do that? And she really encouraged us to start a nonprofit organization. And so in 2005, Daniel and I did that. And it's called Adaptive Action Sports. And we just started kind of creating this community that like-minded people could be a part of. We wanted to meet, like, who's out there who's got, you know, a disability and who snowboards and has the same mindset as us, someone who like wants to live life and really, uh, you know, try new things. And so when we started the organization, it really was to kind of help to pull a community together. And we did. People came from all over the world, like unbelievable snowboarders with different disabilities started showing up to these events that we started putting on. And we ended up creating this movement and this kind of collective push to get snowboarding into the Paralympic Games. And in 2014, we did that. And that was the first time I competed in the Paralympics. And, you know, my life took off 
from there. So it wasn't like I saw the whole staircase before I started climbing. I just took one step at a time in the direction that felt um, authentic to me. And it just unfolded to a place where it's now a professional sport. It's, you know, it's, it's, this is the third year it's in the para, the third time it's in the Paralympic Games. You know, now it's, it's a full professional pathway that adaptive athletes can go down. And it, it took, I think, the passion of just doing it in the first place to get there. Yeah, it's it's incredible. I, I'd love to dive in your mindset in the Olympics, and I know we don't have a, a ton of time, but but I just have to call out one thing that I've noticed in, in uh, media interviews, and that's the power of positivity from your mom. Like it's it, it's one thing I, I know that when she was in the hospital with you, she wouldn't let anyone in the hospital that had any sort of negative mindset about what was going on, and then to have her say yes, let's go for it, and let's go. Uh, have her be an advocate because I could see many parents like just being so fearful of that. And it seems like she took the opposite approach. So what impact has that had on you in your life? Yeah, it's interesting because my mom is actually a very empathetic, emotional person. And so to see that strength come from her was, was amazing but it's you just don't know you just don't know what's going to happen until you're in the situation. You don't yeah. know how strong you are until you're forced to use it. And I would say that's the same for me and for her. Um, my family would have said, and they have said, that I was probably the last person they thought could go through something like this and be be as strong as I was because I too was like I cried easy I was very sensitive as a kid very empathetic and compassionate but like very sensitive and so you know sometimes I think that can be looked at like weakness um, when really now I look at that as strength and that's what's led me to being a motivational speaker and to having a nonprofit and to helping other people but um but, you know, so similar to me going through this and finding my inner strength, I think my mom did the same. And when I was uh, in my worst days in the hospital, those early days where I was fighting for my life, I was on life support. I mean, I was on the edge of death. And multiple times my family would get pulled into the room because that was it. They were saying goodbye and they'd all, you know, hold hands around me and pray and just, you know, everything. And my mom, she felt like I was so close to dying that even a negative thought would send me there. And so there was a day where my my grandmother showed up crying and my mom said, you're not stepping in this room because like Amy can't afford one ounce of belief that she's going to die. And so you're only coming in this room if you can be positive. And so she really set that boundary. And um, yeah, and then I think, you know, moving forward, she's, she supported me and both my parents supported me and what I wanted to do. They knew that I loved snowboarding. And so I don't think they wanted to stop me. I mean, I think my mom tells a funny story that there was one day, and I can't remember exactly the details, but there was one day that, that she had said, well, Amy, how are you going to do that? And I said something, I like got mad. I was like, how? Like, just watch, you know, something like that. And she was like, that's the last time I asked Amy, mm -hmm. how are you going to do that? <laughs> so she ended up just kind of going along with, if I said I was going to do it, then she was like, okay, let's go do it. Yeah. Go mom. That's uh, yeah. that's incredible. Um, I'm a, I, I feel so bad. I'm like losing my light. I don't know what happened. It just like shifted and came in like, hard here and dark over here. Yeah, that's okay. So I want to close with the interesting dynamic of you and Dancing with the Stars. And what's interesting about that is not that you were in Dancing with the Stars, it was that you were literally competing in the Olympics in parallel with Dancing <laughs> with the Stars and how you managed how you managed that whole thing. And maybe maybe to set that up, just talk about how how that even happened. So I mean, I could have never imagined, once again, like you don't really, you know, it's not about like imagining your whole future and working towards it. It's like just taking action in the direction that you want to go 
is really how you create momentum and then, you know, new opportunities come your way. And that's really what happened with Dancing with the Stars. So I had, so I, I was going into the 2014 Paralympic Games and I became the one to watch. Um, every Olympics, you know, the Olympic Committee puts out a group of athletes, which is these are the athletes to watch going into these games. And because snowboarding was new in the Paralympic Games, and because I was pretty much the face of the sport at that time and really driving the sport, um, I became the one to watch. And so I ended up getting a lot of sponsors going into the 2014 Games. I was on Coca-Cola bottles. I was uh, on Kellogg's cereal boxes. I was on Duracell commercials. Um, and then I had this huge Coca-Cola billboard that was over a freeway in L.A., and one of the Dancing with the Stars producers, in fact, it was the executive producer, she saw that and she went to my website and emailed me and said, have you ever thought about being on the show Dancing with the Stars? And um, we ended up setting up a meeting. And I remember that first conversation and, and not really taking it seriously because there's been plenty of opportunities that have come my way that never panned out. Like you yeah. get excited. Someone wants to do your story as a movie or, you yeah. know, someone wants to do this or that. And so you kind of get all these opportunities and you're like, okay, like until it actually happens, I'm not going to get that excited about it. And I had never danced before, um, even when I didn't have, or when I had my legs. And so I had no idea, you know, what I was capable of doing, but I also knew I was an athlete and I was snowboarding and I figured that out. And if I applied the same formula to what I did with snowboarding, then maybe I could figure this dancing thing out. And so they called me in November of, I think it was 2013. The Paralympics were March of 2014. And I didn't hear from them for months. And so I just thought, okay, I just threw myself into training for the games, making the team. But I, yeah, it was, it, you know, it's February. Dancing with the Stars was like well behind me. Um, as far as even being a possibility. And then all of a sudden, so we were leaving for the Paralympic Games, I believe, March 2nd. And it was like February 15th that Dancing with the Stars reaches out with the contract and they're like, okay, you're in. We're going to send out your dance partner. And the first Dancing with the Stars live show was just 72 hours after my Paralympic race in Russia. So it completely overlapped. And in fact, all of the contestants on the show, uh, they had about three weeks to prepare for the first dance. So basically everybody flies out to LA, they put them up in a condo and, and basically every day, seven days a week, you're learning to dance uh, for three weeks. Um, to prepare for that first live show. I didn't have that because I was I was going to be in Russia preparing for the Paralympic Games. So they actually flew out my partner, Derek Huff, which it was a total surprise to get him. I was incredibly blessed to get literally the best, most creative dancer in the world um, as my partner. And they flew him out to Russia. Uh, what's amazing is there was this conflict going on with Russia and Ukraine. And they actually, they thought a war was going to break out during the 2014 games. And so the day after Derek arrived in Sochi, they shut the borders and wouldn't allow any Americans in. So we didn't have a camera crew. We didn't have the producers. It was just Derek and I and so basically, I would dance for, or well, I would snowboard in the mornings with my team um, on the Olympic course. I would snowboard for four hours in the morning, and then I would uh, swap out my snowboard boots for dancing feet and dancing uh, shoes. And I would take two gondolas down, jump in a taxi cab, go to the town over, and I would meet with Derek for about four hours each night. And so we only did that for three days. So I had three half days to even just begin to feel what dancing would feel like. And all of a sudden, I was competing in the games. He had to come back to the U.S. I competed in the games, won a bronze medal, literally stepped off the podium, stepped onto the airplane, traveled 24 hours, got off in LA, went straight into the CBS studios. And literally within hours, I was like spray tan, hair, makeup, sparkles, glitter. 
and I was live on the first Dancing with the Stars um, show <laughs> episode. And, um, and, you know, I had no idea, once again, A, what I was doing. I had no confidence in what I was doing, that's for sure. So I think that first show was just pure adrenaline that got me through that dance. If you go back and watch, it's actually one of my favorite um, it's one of my favorite dances to watch because I was just, I was on such a high from winning a medal in the games and now having this opportunity. I was totally jet lagged. The whole thing was so surreal. Um, and it was just, it was just crazy for me to wrap my head around. And I had no idea that I would make it past the first show. But all I thought is I don't want to be the first one eliminated and I ended up making it to the end, coming in second place. And um, it was, I mean, that was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. But, you know, it, and it's just one of those things where it's like you just, you, you go into something committed to figuring it out. And when you are committed, you will always find a way because there's a gazillion uh, excuses that will come. Like, I don't have legs. I can't dance. The floor is slippery. I don't have the right feet. But when you're committed, it's like, well, let's try every single thing we can. I'd have feet shipped out to me. We would try all types of things. And we always figured, figured it out. Even if it was the very last second before going live, we always figured it out. And so it taught me so much resilience, taught me just how capable I am. I knew that from the Paralympics, but this took it to a whole other extreme. And just how, you know, if you, if you have a vision for your life and, and, and you're excited to get curious and try new things, that can lead you to incredible places. Yeah. And, and you, were, you were the first, right, on Dancing with the Stars with prosthetic legs. So I think, um, oh gosh, why can I think of her name? There was one, oh, why can I think, Heather um, Mills, Heather Mills. She was a few seasons before me, and she has a prosthetic leg. I was I was the first with two prosthetic legs, and and I was also at this point kind of the first and only, I guess, in that category to you know to to make it as far as I did. In fact, I up until maybe three seasons ago, I had the highest scores in the history of the show. Wow. Um, which is so crazy, you know, just to think, because there's obviously been incredible Olympians and athletes and dancers on the show, but it, it it was a whole thing. It was a whole thing I never could have expected. The world was like so supportive and so behind me, and it was such a big, cool, unbelievable experience. And um, I mean, it changed my life forever. I, I, I continued down the path I was going anyways. I was a motivational speaker at that point. It just kind of elevated everything. Mm -hmm. um, after doing Dance with the Stars, I went on a speaking tour with Oprah across the country. And then I wrote a book and that became a New York Times bestseller. So kind of all of the things that were on my bucket list, um, I, I've been able to check off, but it all goes back to just staying authentic to myself, which is I love snowboarding. I never could have imagined that I would become a professional snowboarder or that I could make money doing it or that I would then go on to write a New York Times bestselling book. Or, But at the same time, I never, um, I would have never said that I couldn't do that. That's, that's something that in an abstract way, that's where I wanted my life to go. Uh, but it really took just those first steps, you know, just to kind of start to open up the doors of more opportunity and more possibility. And so I just, you know, for anybody listening, I, the hardest, the hardest part is the first step we get in our own way, right? I could have easy, I, I could have easily told myself at the very beginning, I don't have legs. I can't snowboard again. And, and my life would have gone down a completely different direction. But instead I thought, well, I'm curious. Let's see if I put the effort in, you know, if I could figure something out. And I think that's how I've approached every everything in my life, even writing a book. It's like, oh my God, that's daunting. That's hard. Who am I to write a book? Who's going to buy it? Who's going to read it? 
well, let's just take the first steps and and just start writing what I want to share. And, you know, all of a sudden a chapter turns into two, into five, into 10, and then it's a book. And then it's, you know, it takes on a life of its own. So you just got to take the first step. You don't got to think about the whole staircase. Just take that first, that, that first step forward. You crossed over, Amy. <laughs> right? I mean, I would... <laughs> just thinking about that, it's just, it's crazy. But that's, is that what it meant? Right? Like you were... Yeah. Like you just crossed over into this new life and and taken every moment at a time and changing people's life for the better. I mean, even in your your you know where you're living, your living quarters, you're helping others. I mean, it's just in, incredible to think about all everything and the words from that gentleman in that massage parlor and how life just has a way of uh, creating this narrative that wouldn't otherwise have taken place except for the positive energy and looking at one step at a time and following that through and then looking back and thinking about what that gentleman said is, is it's crazy. You know, it is. Um, and I, I mean, I choose to believe that this is what he meant, you know, yeah. and, and when I was in my darkest moments and, everyone was thinking I was dying. I, I chose to believe in what he was saying. And so that belief that, you know, when bad things happen or what we think are bad to not be scared, you know, that you can go on to live an incredible life to truly, totally believe that, you know, I've leaned into that and, um, and it certainly led me to amazing places. And, and so, yeah, I think, you know, I, I think that's what he meant when he meant cross, you know, if I've crossed over yet, but it's really interesting to talk about and to think about it really, you know, I think we all, I don't think it's, it's just certain special people who get to have experiences like that. I think we probably all do. We just might not all pay attention. So mm -hmm. it's really a matter of like paying attention to, um, to the things the people who are around us and the conversations that we're having and, and really kind of taking those things to heart, you know, not just brushing off the encounter that we had with somebody. It's like really, you know, we're, I think we're here to help each other like grow and yeah. evolve. So it's letting, it's letting those experiences and those moments in and, and, you know, making the choice to kind of believe in them or not, but yeah. That's so right on. So what's what's next for you? What is it next for you? <laughs> um, gosh, you know, I mean, so with all of this, I went on to win um two more Paralympic medals and and uh, we're training even more athletes for the Paralympic Games, which are actually coming up in March. I have just been hired uh, by NBC to be an announcer for the games, Congrats. which is exciting. Awesome. I get to. Yeah. Uh, I haven't I haven't retired, but I, I have an injury which took me out of competing in the next games in Beijing, and so it's amazing to be able to still represent the sport and the athletes and share their stories as an announcer. And um, I started a podcast um, in the last year called Bouncing Forward, which is all about resilience and living your best life, like n not overcoming challenges, but actually using our challenges to get ahead. I feel like that's that's what's helped me get ahead in my own life. And uh, I have incredible guests on that podcast. Um, so that's Bouncing Forward, and you can find that on Apple and Spotify, anywhere that you find podcasts. And uh, I have another book in me that I've been really, really starting to get inspired about. I'm starting to feel that bubble up. And so I'll start working on that. I do a lot of speaking um, now virtual because of COVID. And, you know, that's another example of how you can take adversity and really make it your ally. You can really grow from it. You know, I was speaking live on stages across the world uh, before COVID hit. And then suddenly that went to a dead stop when, you know, suddenly there's a global pandemic. And yet it's opened up the doors to do all of this virtual speaking and events. And in fact, I do even more work now uh, in a space that I love because COVID kind of shut the door on live events. I've been able to connect with, you know, a hundred times more people. Um, 
having a virtual experience or, you know, virtual events. And so I, I, I'm excited to continue to explore this. And then I also am, am um, working on launching my first course, um, which is exciting. I've never done anything like that, but trying to kind of bring things online a little bit more. I'm excited to um, be launching a course around speaking, in fact, and, mm. and actually helping people um, kind of be able to share their story and the importance of sharing their story and, and where that can take you in your life and how many lives that can impact. So yeah, there's, there's all types of stuff. I kind of went from physically figuring out all this stuff to now wanting to help others find the possibilities in their own life. Well, that's awesome. I, I can't wait for the new book to come out and just to watch what you do in this world. You are an incredible human and it's a pleasure to get to know you. And um, uh, I I know you're just going to do amazing things. So thanks for being on the, the podcast today. I'm, ha- I'm, I'm lit up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. Uh, thank you. I really... Um, I, I'm just honored that you had me here and just that you had me at your event in the first place. Like I said, what an incredible experience that you've created for so many people. And for me, it was such an honor to be asked to attend it and to meet everybody and just to be a part of it. And I, I think it's amazing what you're doing. You're making a huge impact. Well, thank you so much. And th- th- that event too, because the COVID went from a thousand people max in person to now we've had, you know, we have 5,000 people watch it live and another 10, you know, 10,000 views on top of that since. So it's, yeah, your story is resonating with, with many out there. And, and I do think that that's a blessing. It's, it's taking what's in front of you and saying, you know, there's a million reasons not to do something, but what can we do from this? And then all of a sudden you feel, you realize that the impact's much greater, you know? So yeah, I really, Really appreciate you, Amy, and and I can't wait to see what you do next and stay in touch. Ah, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Not Almost There podcast. It is so great to have you again. If you haven't hit the subscribe button, please do. That is such a great way to support the show. Also, another great way is to share this content with someone. Undoubtedly, there's someone out there that can get something out of these podcasts and you sharing them being an ambassador means more to us than anything. Also, your feedback is always welcome. So please leave it either in a review or on our website at notalmostthere.com. Thank you again for being here and we look forward to an amazing year ahead. Have a great and awesome productive week.